Pod. First, though, we are taking a look at Point Roberts. We've talked about this throughout the pandemic. Many residents who are still in Point Roberts feeling very cut off and some good news when it comes to test requirements when coming into Canada. Brian Calder joins me now. He's the president of the Point Roberts Chamber of Commerce. Thanks so much for being with us. Oh, thank you, Joe, for your continued interest in the plight of the point. <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. And I think people do have have interest because it is so close and, and right up against Tawasin, and people are concerned about the residents who are still there. Uh, what does this mean as far as Canada uh, saying that they will not require the COVID-19 testing for Point Roberts residents? Well, if they mandated that and kept it in place, we would really be stuck then because we have no ability to test within a 72-hour window uh, to get the uh, pass to go through. So we have no capacity to do that here, so we couldn't comply with it, and we'd be even further locked down and isolated. Uh, Basically what it does is puts us back to where we were pre February 15th. In other words, everything up to February 14th, uh, uh, we're we're back to the same we've already had for 11 months, which, believe me, is a real lockdown and created a ghost town here. So So I guess I'm saying it's it's, uh, nice to be recognized, and even in the uh, press release from Governor Inslee, they acknowledge that Point Roberts is completely unique, which is, of course, what we've been saying for 11 months months and it's nice to have them finally recognize that and one size fits all does not work for Point Roberts. So this will waive the test requirement and like you said that's a good thing because there's no way for residents there to get the test. Uh, what does it mean though as far as residents still being cut off as far as, far as getting exemptions say for medical appointments but also uh, being able to do things like go grocery shopping or, or leave Point Roberts? Well, we can't, we can't come into Delta like we used to, uh, and to Watson and, and Surrey and Langley and do any shopping. Um, and we need special dispensation to go even to the other side because if it's anything deemed to be less than essential, uh, we were locked down. Right. So because I know when we were talking uh, with the circle of care people, I think it was last week, uh, their right. concerns were that there are seniors that are living in Point Roberts that, yes, they need to go to medical appointments, but they also uh, need to go visit family or they need to go grocery shopping. And they'd like to have some way to do that. That is that is outside of the, the ferry that runs a couple uh, days a week. Well, then the ferry's canceled now half the time. Uh, if, if you're lucky if we get it once a week now, and very few people, maybe three to five people going. I mean, that's, that's it's a ludicrous operation, and I mean, you know our weather and, and how it kicks up out here in the 18 miles across to Bellingham, and so they have to cancel when it's foggy or lumpy or windy or whatever. And it wasn't an answer even in the first place in the summer. Um, because we'd get maybe, maybe 20% of the people using it. I mean, it's, it's awkward. You've got to go down ramps in a, in a marina and take your two-hour trip and then take ramps up the other end. You've got four hours to scramble around going shopping, pirate cab, blah, 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 get your groceries and try and get them all back onto a boat. Um, it, it, it never was the answer. The answer is to allow people access to go on Highway 99 from here to Blaine. Right. Uh, they allowed people to go from here to Alaska. I mean, that's a little longer than going from here to Blaine. 
and you're isolated in your car, you're po- full protocol, you're masked up, you're gloved up, and you talk to a person in a booth who's at least 10 feet away from you, uh, what's the risk? There isn't any. And there's more risk going on the boat or a plane. Yeah, you would think so. Uh, when you mentioned that, that, that the ferry has been cancelled, is that because of weather? Yes, right. yes. And yeah. then would it be the honor system, I guess, with the, the fear of, of penalties if somebody was to come through uh, Tawasin, uh, go through Surrey to the border, uh, that they would, it would be the honor system, I would imagine, given that exemption, saying, I'm not going to get out of my car, I'm not going to stop anywhere in Canada, I just want to go and drive into the States and do my shopping or do what else I need to do. Well, that's true, but there's a simple solution to it, which they use to haul freight. And they put a little sticker on the door, so if the sticker's broken, when you get to the other side, you know that someone's been out of the door. So you put the little sticker on the door, and as long as it's not breached and you arrive over on the other side within half an hour, you know the person hasn't violated uh, the trust. Hmm. And there's too much military mentality and not enough compassionate, rational, safe understanding uh, to make it happen properly for Point Roberts. And I think part of it is we're only a thousand people. And so we're, we're like the size of a subdivision to a politician. Right. I thought I had heard, too, that uh, for the longest time there had been no COVID cases and that there was perhaps one. Now, has there been any uh, cases of COVID in Point Roberts? There, in 11 months, there's been one it was approximately two weeks ago, and last weekend, the fire chief Carlton tested 128 people. He immediately reacted when the person was identified as a, uh, having COVID and locked them down. They're following a full protocol. Uh, everything's under control. No one tests positive on the 128 he did on the weekend. And so we've got a record that nobody can touch. We follow the protocols. We mask. We, and, and we're a small community, so we're not, you know, in a in a Costco style environment anyhow, where there's lots of people bumping shoulders. We are isolated in more ways than one. Some good, some not so good. Yeah. And and so what what do people have to fear from us? I mean, it's fear and lack of concern that that really bothers me about it. Yeah, you would almost think uh, that it would be Point Roberts residents that would be more fearful uh, if uh, people are going out and about and and possibly uh, bringing the virus back. Uh, How are things going there? We've talked uh, with Len Saunders, an immigration lawyer, and again with the the Circle of Care uh, people saying it's pretty dire as far as what's available at the grocery store and what's happening in Point Roberts. How are things? Well, our blessing is the grocery store. Uh, Ali owns it, has been uh, above and beyond by far. I mean, I think if it was me, I'd have closed it because the cost to her running that operation has got to be far and away from what she's taking in the till. Uh, She's down 90%. Now, put that in a personal perspective. Some of the boss comes to you and says, oh, due to covid we're going to cut your salary by 90%, but we want the same level of service from you. So instead of getting 3000 a month, you're getting 300 a month and carry on. You're not going to be very happy about that. And yet she, too, for 11 months now, she's been down 90% at the cash register and troops on. Hmm. I mean, if anyone deserves a gold medal in Point Roberts, it's her. 
this is, uh, as you said, welcome news that the test won't be required because it would be impossible for residents to get a test. What else would you like to see done as this continues and it looks like there's no end in sight at this point as far as the border reopening? Well, I think the the thing I picked out of uh, Governor Inslee's uh, was acknowledging, first time I've seen anyone acknowledge us in writing, we are unique in North America, I would submit, and I'll argue that point. We're 75% owned property by Canadian people. We're 90% market is driven by Canadian people, not American people. And our population swells from 1,000 uh, in the winter to about 5,000, five times in the summer, all Canadians. So uh, our fire department, 70% of our firefighters come from Canada, volunteer down here to get the training. Thank heavens for them. Our water comes from Canada, from British Columbia. Our power, all our electric power, comes from Canada. We are more influenced by far by Canada than we are by Washington State. All right. Well, we are going to leave it there for today. Brian, thanks so much, uh, though, for joining us uh, with this update. Appreciate it. We appreciate it from you. Thank you very much, Jill. Thanks for being with us. We are going to shift gears a little bit right now and talk a bit more about a test in BC. It's called the FSA, the Foundation Skills Assessment Test. And each year, there is always some controversy about it. This is the test given to grades four and seven students in BC. It's a standardized test. And uh, historically speaking, the BC Teachers Federation has been opposed to this testing, saying that it creates anxiety for students and it results in organizations that are then ranked but doesn't tell the whole story. My next guest is going to talk about whether or not there is value in the FSA. And Paul Romani is the director of Pear Tree Education, and he joins me on the line now. Paul, thanks so much for being with us. Hi, thanks for having me on. I just want to, in case people aren't familiar with Pear Tree Education, this is, a, is it a private school in Kitsilano? Yeah, Pear Tree Elementary is our private school, and Pear Tree Education is our main organization. Uh, Talk to me about the FSA and your thoughts on this, because once again, it has been in the news, uh, BCTF uh, telling parents uh, that if they want to take their kids out, they can take their kids out. And they really do uh, tend to discourage people from taking uh, the FSAs. What do you say about that? Uh, Quite a lot, really. Um, So firstly, I think it's important to see the FSAs in the context of the actual provincial exams. The new provincial exams that were introduced a few years ago, these are very similar in many ways to the FSA. So you've got the FSAs in grade four uh, and in grade seven, then you've got the provincial exams in grade 10. So these exams really give us a snapshot into into how well these kids are preparing for these provincial exams. Uh, And because of the new exams, I mean, that's one of the reasons why we've expanded to grade eight is because we really think that the new exams are are very good. And so I, I... I don't see a problem with wanting to know how a child's progressing. I think another thing is that these are standardized tests. And so in the context of your classroom, you can feel like your students are doing well. Parents can feel like they're doing well. So can students. But a standardized test really gives everybody, every stakeholder, including the government, a true understanding of how well children are progressing in a specific classroom, in a specific school, in the grand context of other schools. Uh, I think that's so important. Um, and at the same time, it's really about accountability. I mean, every every 
every school and every teacher is accountable to the parents and the students. Uh, and so in our case, in Petri Elementary, we're very transparent with parents. We want them to know how their children are progressing, which is why we have a portfolio online for every single student, where we do goal setting for their academics, their socio-emotional development, their physical development for every single student, because we want parents and students to know that they are progressing and how well they're progressing and what they can do as their own contributors to this to improve and help us. So it kind of baffles me why anyone wouldn't want to know this and why a parent wouldn't want to know how their child is progressing. It's just like sticking your head in the sand and saying, I I don't want to know that, but I hope they do well. It's like, well, this is your chance to find out how well they're going to be doing towards the provincial exams. Why would you not want to know that? Uh, what do you say to, to one of the arguments that is often made? I, I mean, it's no secret that one of the main reasons uh, the BC Teachers Federation doesn't like the testing, the FSAs, is because the Fraser Institute is a think tank that then FOIs the information and puts out school rankings. I think this, you know, there's obviously some argument to be made for that. I mean, it is unfair that uh, I feel like public schools are unfairly treated in that respect. But you can say in every classroom there are strong students and there are weak students, and perhaps the strongest students in public schools are not really highlighted through doing these tests and, and if you're going to use the data in that way. But ultimately, the, the most important part of doing any kind of standardized test is it provides data to all educational stakeholders in where the children are at and what they can improve upon. And if you just do in-school in testing, that doesn't necessarily reveal that because you're really testing for what you're looking for. But when someone else does a test with them, they're looking for other things that maybe you, as a teacher, you've inadvertently neglected to do. And it's nice to kind of have that wake-up call now when you can still intervene and do something about it rather than wait till they get to grade 12 and they fail their provincials because you just didn't, you know, you didn't cover those skills. Uh, do you think it takes away time that could be better used doing something else? <laughs> well, uh, I mean, I, I found that really ironic from the BCTF because they're the ones who wanted schools to remain closed. They're the ones pushing at the very the very maximum, really, of having partial reopening. So, you know, if they care about time in school, they would want kids to be in school. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean... Again, you might want to make an argument in terms of how you spend your days, but this is literally a very small part of an entire grade, uh, and it's only two grades in elementary school. I really don't see the big deal in that. It's not that detrimental. Have you ever then been in a position with with Pear Tree Elementary that the FSAs have been administered, uh, you've got the results, and you've seen something that needs improvement, or you've used the information from those tests to do something to make some kind of change? Well, I will be honest. I mean, we're we're still a new school here. And so we, we've kind of refrained from actually taking part in the test until now, because when you have kids coming to you from other schools, including from public schools, uh, we didn't want the, the test that they'd be taking after just joining the school to be a reflection of our school. So we thought, well, wait till they've been in the school for a while, especially kids join us in kindergarten, because then that would be a true reflection of our education model. Uh, whereas otherwise, it's just, an edu- it's just a reflection of the education they got in their previous school, which we felt would be unfairly uh, treating us. So we, we haven't actually taken part in the test yet, but it is something we actually ironically discussed talking about doing this very year. So it is kind of interesting this topic's come up now. Mm-hmm. How long has your school been, been a school? So as a school, we've been around since 2016, uh, but we're, our organization's been around since 2011. All right. So so even though you've been around for five years, that's not long enough, you think, that taking the test would be a reflection of Pear Tree Elementary? 
Well, I mean, the test is for grades four and grade seven. So if you've got kids joining you in kindergarten, they would really have just reached that point at this at this stage. Uh, we wanted enough time with the students to, to get to the point where the test would be a fair reflection. Uh, and likewise, you know, when we saw the provincial exams, we, we didn't, the original ones, we didn't want to take part in those as a school and become a high school. And we were debating about IB as a route for us because, again, it didn't reflect our education model at that time. But the new ones are exactly what we're about. We're all about math in context and literacy in context. So now that's been a real motivation for us to expand into high school, which is what we're doing this September. Uh, and at the same time, opens our minds up to doing the FSAs as well. So we're, we're, we're very open for that. Um, but for institutions that have been around for a very long time, like public schools, it, it baffles me why they wouldn't want to take part in that. Uh, do you what do you think about the fact that this being the pandemic year uh, we did have schools closed we had kids going onto online learning distance learning we had hybrid models things even with schools reopened haven't been uh, normal they haven't been it's not a school year that looks like any other uh, do you think that that might have an impact on the test results or that might skew the test results in some way yeah i mean of course and that's the thing that's i think that's the kind of real issue here and uh the kind of reasoning behind uh, certain decisions is that uh, because of the school closures and because the fact that distance learning really does not work with children. I mean, my background's in, my master's in education is in educational technology. And I can tell you right now that distance learning through a screen with a child does not work. You have to, you can't substitute being uh, face-to-face with a child in the classroom. And every barrier you put up, whether it's a computer screen or plexiglass or face mask, every single barrier that you put up there's a detriment towards learning with a child. And uh, so, yeah, you, you're going to see that impact. And we've seen it ourselves uh, because we offer SAT tutoring to kids who are applying to like, other private schools. And there's been a noticeable like widening of the gap when it comes to their math skills, their literacy skills, even their social skills have just really plummeted. Uh, and I, I can only put that down to the lack of learning they've, they've had for the past year. And, uh, they, you know, they say so themselves as well, but it's something that we've struggled to help them with. But in our own school, we've, we've managed to kind of uh, deal with it the best we can. All right. Uh, Paul, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you so much for joining us to talk about this. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for being with us on this Thursday afternoon. Well, this is good news, especially for those who watch the southern resident killer whales who have been worried about these whales in the past. A new baby has been born to the L-pod, and that is, pardon the pun, creating a few waves. Let's bring in Lance Barrett-Leonard, the director of the Marine Mammal Research Program with OceanWise, to talk a bit more about this. Thanks so much for being with us. Oh, thanks for having me, Joe. Always exciting news when a new addition to the pod is spotted. How significant is this? Oh, absolutely. It's great news. Uh, it's, it's significant because this, this population of southern residents is only, well, now it's 75 individuals. You can count them all. Um, and uh, that's tiny, really, for any kind of wildlife population that's, that's uh, all by itself. That's basically standalone and we're trying to conserve. So, Every birth is, is wonderful news. Do we know much about the baby uh, orca at this point? Uh, well, we know it was sighted for the first time yesterday. That's what's generated all the interest, and it still had what we call fetal folds. So just like a, a human baby, when they're born, they're all wrinkled, and their dorsal fin is sort of folded over. And over the next few days or a week or so, they 
they fill in. And so this baby had uh, had still had some fetal folds, so so very new. Um, and uh, but it seems to be it was swimming. I did, haven't seen it, but my I've talked with my colleagues uh, in northern Washington, and they say that it's. Uh, it looks vigorous and strong, and its mother uh, seems fine as well. And so we don't know the sex of this whale at this point yet? We don't, and we likely won't for a while. They, when they roll over, if, you get, if somebody happens to get a photo of them upside down, we can tell from their bellies, their pigmentation is, between males and, and females is different. We're hoping it's a female because we need more females in that population. We've, we've sort of got enough males, but... <laughs> We'll, we'll take him if he's a boy. <laughs> of course. Um, what does this mean as far as the whales? Uh, I, I know in the past we've had uh, some very sad outcomes with this particular pod with the southern resident whales as well. Uh, how long is there a window that we're looking at now that we're kind of holding our breath or making sure waiting till we know it's kind of in the clear and things are good? Yeah, good question. Yes, the first six months or so is really critical. So about, about half of most Killer whale populations, the typical mortality in that period is about 50%. So, uh, yeah, so we'll definitely have our fingers crossed for a while. Um, uh, all we can do is hope for the best, really. I, I know you, you said you weren't out there or you haven't seen uh, the new edition yet, but I understand I was looking at some other reports of this, that the other pods kind of all gathered, which is a pretty impressive sight. Uh, what's the significance of uh, the other pods all coming together? Or do we know, are, are they doing that because there's an addition? Well, we don't know if they came together because there's there was an addition, um, although who knows? <laughs> Um, but, but I mean, in terms of the three pods coming from different, because they usually swim separately, in the, especially in the winter months. Um, but what we do know is when there's a birth, all of the whales that are present, you know, in, around the mother at that time are, are usually very interested in the calves and they, and, they, uh, and they pay a lot of attention and come around. Um, and often if, as they swim, that female and her brand newborn may be surrounded by a, a, by a sort of phalanx of other, <laughs> of other individuals, and particularly you know, juveniles, young, sort of the teenagers of the killer whale world always seem to be particularly interested in, in the young cast. The whale population, like you said, it's now at 75. We've seen those numbers fluctuate. What is the biggest concern as far as or the biggest threat that we're concerned about looking at these whales? Well, we sort of group the, the, the three big threats really are food availability, they're going to have enough to eat, contaminants, so those be, you know, pollutants of various kinds and disturbance, underwater noise. And of those three, um, it's hard to, to decide, you know, uh, to know which is the, is the greatest threat. But one that, that we certainly know is significant and that we've, there's been a lot of uh, concern and, and efforts to, to address has been the noise and disturbance factor. And there was a paper recently published by my friend and colleague, Dr. Stephen Rafferty and colleagues, uh, showing there was an exhaustive study of, of necropsies or, or autopsies, if you like, of, of killer whales that have washed ashore over, over the last many years. Um, and there was a surprisingly large number of whales that had died and locally had been struck by something, a blunt trauma, as they say, and that was probably ship strikes. So we, we think that ship strikes are one thing that's that's quite dangerous. You know, the risk of ship strikes is significant for, for killer whales. Um, uh, and that's a threat that people have only really begun to think about recently. It's interesting you mentioned that because I, yeah, I think I would agree if you ask people kind of what the biggest threat is, most might say a lack of salmon or a lack of food supply. Yes. And, and you know, I I would I'm one of those people who, you know, who would have said that last year. And 
what's and food supply is certainly a very big issue. And and uh, but what's what's good about this year is that the we can sort of tell how the whales are doing based on their body, how fat they are. We can, you know, I, this research I'm involved in and my a couple of my colleagues, John Durbin in particular, uh, south of the border, are, work collaboratively on this. And the um, a lot of the southern residents seem to be to be better in body condition this last sort of year or two. Um, so we were really worried about this in 2017, for example. They were, they were all pretty skinny. But they seem to be a bit better in the last couple of years. So that's great. And there have been some restrictions on, on fishing that may be playing a role in that. Because um, fish have, the Chinook salmon that they depend on haven't been particularly abundant, but there has been less fishing pressure and that may be, may be paying off. Right. Because they are, I mean, the, the only way I, I describe it is they're, they're pretty picky eaters. They only eat certain things. That's right. I have a teenage son and I can relate. Um, <laughs> yes. Yes. They're very, very picky eaters. So they, um, uh, yeah, Chinook salmon are really what what they want to chow down on almost exclusively. They'll eat some other fish, you know, on the side a little bit. But but if Chinook numbers go down, um, chum is fairly important too. If those if chum and Chinook are down, then the killer whales do very badly. What do you do now as far as monitoring, I guess, from a distance or, or keeping tabs on this new calf and seeing kind of what happens next with the pod? That's right. So the researchers on both sides of the border, and we work well together, uh, will uh, be, you know, interested in, in, in seeing this little guy, little guy or girl as, as, you know, over the next six months or year, um, you know, uh, and assess how she's doing. Um, that said, um, we obviously don't encourage uh, boaters to approach them closely. That's a, that's a, a noise and a disturbance factor for them. But uh, anyway, we'll... There's not much we we can do in terms of any intervention. We really just uh, we watch them and we try to encourage all the conservation projects that are going on right now in the two countries, cutting back on pollutants, limiting fishing. The, the shipping sector has done an amazing job in the last few years of of sort of self-regulating and slowing down as they come in and out of the Strait of Georgia and moving and displacing laterally, as we say, giving the whales some room. Um, and that's been a, a a very uh, cooperative and effective effort. Do you think there will be any impact uh, given that the Victoria finally finished the treatment plant for sewage? Uh, will that play a, will that be a factor as well? Certainly could be, Jill. Um, you know, there's been some very good work um, done on, on pollutant levels in killer whales. And we know that, that the Southern resident population has high levels of these persistent organic pollutants, um, dioxins and furans and stuff those are not usually associated so much with with sewage um in fact they they're not at all associated if the sewage stream is clean um but uh more with industrial operations but there's been a, a, a slow de- well the use of those chemicals has has been uh eliminated for many years now and uh, we're seeing a, a decline in the body tissues of the of the older animals in the pocket. They, they're very persistent, but they do decline very slowly over time. So that's an improvement. Whether the Victoria uh, sewage treatment plant will have a direct effect, I don't know, but it certainly doesn't hurt. All right. Uh, is there anything, is it peculiar to have uh, an orca born in February or is it something that, that happens and that's, that, that's a, the, is there, is it a straight, is it out of season or is there such a thing as a season? <laughs> Good question. Nope, uh, it's pretty normal. So they, killer whales have about a 17-month gestation period. 
they seem to mate in the in the late summer or fall. We see a lot of mating activity at that time of year anyway. Um, and so the math kind of works out. They have most of their calves in the winter. We don't usually get to see them, though, when they're really young, because typically the, the whales aren't around much in the winter. So, you know, they come back in the spring, and, and we're out there looking to see if they've had any calves over the winter. So this is kind of nice that they happen to be in local waters. Um when this calf was born or just after it was born. That that makes sense because the, a couple of weeks ago, or no, it wasn't even that long ago, I think it was Valentine's Day, there was a video that somebody took off Whitecliff Park in West Vancouver of orcas. And I thought at the time that it's, it did seem like a strange time of year. And then I thought, oh, well, maybe I just wasn't paying attention uh, in the past. But so was a sighting like that, is that kind of uh, out of character as well? Well, those ones... There was a bit of confusion in some media reports, but those whales uh, off, on Valentine's Day off Whitecliff were actually members of the transient population, ah. the, mammal, the mammal-eating population. Uh, and they, are, they do tend to be around all, all year, so that wasn't unusual at all. Um, it's cool sighting for anyone living <laughs> in West Van or happen to see it, but not unusual. Um, southern resident killer whales, the fish eaters, they're, they're, less, they're much less commonly seen in the winter than in the summer months. All right. Well, it's some good news. And I know a lot of people were very uh, excited and uh, happy to see uh, the pictures and to uh, follow along with this. Thank you so much for joining us to talk about this today. Oh, you're very welcome, Joe. Anytime. Well, taking a look at some transit news and transit-oriented development, concentrating that high-density housing around transit stations. It's happened in the past. It will likely happen again when the Broadway line is built. It can be a good thing, but there can also be some negative consequences, according to a new UBC study. And our show contributor, John Jang, joins us now with more on that. Hey, good afternoon, Jill. You know, I've always believed that if you're living in a rental unit, living by the SkyTrain would actually be a good thing for you. After all, having closer access to public transit seems like an easy advantage to get around town. But according to a brand new study, transit-oriented development in and around Metro Vancouver is actually helping to cause displacement, not prevent that. So for more on this, we're now joined by Craig Jones. He's a PhD candidate in the Department of Geography at UBC and also a research coordinator for the Housing Research Collaborative that is at the UBC's School of Community and Regional Planning. Craig, appreciate you giving us some time. Explain to us what you found in this particular study suggesting that transit-oriented development is actually causing displacement. Sure. So this is uh, actually follow-up work uh, that I, on some work I'd done previously looking at the um, demolitions of purposeful rental buildings that were built, you know, in the 1960s, 1970s in uh, metro towns. And so I observed uh, in that area that uh, buildings were coming down and, you know, very tall condos were going up. And so that got me interested in this, in this topic. And I, I wrote about that as part of my uh, master's uh, degree, my thesis. So um, going from there, I, I thought that there was more work to be done. And so I started looking at clusters of purposeful rental, these sort of three to four story wood frame walk-ups, you know, at least 30 years old. Uh, throughout suburban metro Vancouver that were close to uh, SkyTrain infrastructure or other rapid transit. Also in the North Shore, I took a look around uh, the uh, C-Bus just to see where, identify places that were candidates, potential candidates for redevelopment. And that's where I came across um, the Burquitlam area in Coquitlam. 
Well, it's interesting you bring that up because when I've looked at rental units in and around Metro Vancouver in the past, whether it's in Burnaby, New West, or Vancouver, I found that rental units positioned near SkyTrain stations or the C-Bus are generally more expensive because it's part of the advantage of living so close to public transit. So in a way, while you enjoy that as a walking distance, a short hop to the SkyTrain, it's actually less affordable and therefore less livable depending on your wage. Sure, uh, that's, a, that's an interesting point. Now, what I observed is that uh, there, particularly in, in you know in the Metrotown case, you know there are older apartment buildings that uh, happen to be located near SkyTrain, so the buildings predate the, the rapid transit, and um, because they're older, they're purposeful rental, uh, they tend to actually have a you know a lower uh, sort of price point for rent. So in the Burquitlam case, actually for these older low-rise rental buildings, they're actually quite affordable as well and, and a bit larger. And then what happened is that after the Evergreen extension came, came through and opened in 2016, uh, that's when land use planning directions that had been established back in 2012 started coming into effect. And um, these uh, you know, older low-rise uh, not in great condition, admittedly, uh, buildings that are renting quite affordable, quite affordable, and also tend to be a bit larger, uh, were started to be demolished. And so, what I observed is that between um, 2015 and 2019, in this Berquitlam neighborhood, uh, there were uh, 600, around about 600 uh, of these purposeful rental apartment units. That were taken off the market uh, to be to be demolished. I don't actually have demolition numbers, but I can see publicly available you know, for what for data for what is there, at least being being rented out. So 600 are taken off the market there, uh, and so that's I found that to be significant um, because you know that's 60% of the purposeful rental units in that one in that one neighborhood. Well, it's very interesting because when you look at the excitement that people have when we're talking about extending the SkyTrain out towards UBC and going west along Broadway, well, you're cutting through Kitsilano. And anyone that knows Kitsilano probably understands that a lot of those buildings where people have lived at for years and years and years, mostly renters, well, these are all older buildings as well and buildings that are probably primed for redevelopment purposes if that SkyTrain line happens to cut exactly where the building is yeah so that is the the next uh frontier of of this process i, I would say um in terms of the expansion of our rapid transit network as the as the broadway subway line uh goes through it's going to go through probably the most dense concentration of this type of building purpose rental wood frame low rise uh and there's going to, there is going to be a lot of pressure um, on these buildings, uh, I think, to, to redevelop uh, at greater density. Along the whole corridor, I think that that's just going to be, there's going to be, you know, development that's happening. In fact, uh, the Goodman report, you know, identified that there were some buildings in the Granville area that had been sold and speculated that was in anticipation of the Broadway line coming through. Now, with that said, um, I, I know that the city of Vancouver has already started thinking about this. They have been considering this now for a few years. They've uh, implemented uh, development cost expectations uh, program to let the development community know that, like, you know, so to basically put a lid on land speculation. Um, and there, and then the, the city of Vancouver has other tools, such as the rate of change uh, bylaw to slow the, the, the demolition redevelopment process. 
but still, I mean, there, uh, I do think that, that big changes are coming. And um, what I argue for in my work is not that this change shouldn't happen. That's unrealistic. You know, these buildings are quite old. They're going to need uh, significant reinvestment. But when there are these concentrations of the rental buildings and, you know, what I've observed in Metrotown and now Berquitlam of large-scale rapid change, you know, in, in, these, in the built, built form of these neighborhoods, uh, that's really distressing for people to see and for the communities to experience. Uh, so I do argue that um, I think Burnaby is an interesting case of, um, being a poster child for what is what's called uh, dem evictions, and then since the most recent election, there's now a policy in place to um, to try to limit the displacement of the community, offer replacement units for for those displaced, and provide greater supports uh, for those people that are uh, forced to move for high density redevelopment around transit. He is Craig Jones, Research Coordinator for the Housing Research Collaborative at UBC's School of Community and Regional Planning. Craig, appreciate you giving us some time here today. Yeah, thank you for having me. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.